You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Has anybody ever attempted to scam you? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) Really? For sure. I mean, from homeless people who... Just trying to catch the bus, man. Who oh, yeah. um, I heard actually, I heard one from a from a friend of mine who got scammed by a homeless person. She said uh, somebody came up to her and said, "Hey, like, I got this Starbucks gift card, but like, I don't really like Starbucks. You just you just give me twenty bucks. You have this gift card." And she was like, "Oh yeah, oh. fair trade. Wow, sure." And um, <laughs> she goes to the Starbucks. Obviously, there's freaking nothing no, on nothing the card. On it, of obviously, course, of course. Um, but yeah, people try to scam me. I, I had it happen uh, that didn't, didn't success successfully scam me. But there was a charge I was that got a fraud alert on it. And there with my assistant, and I said, "Well, let's just you know, let's tr- just try and call them directly and see if we can clear this up." So we we call the number uh, on the back of my Visa card, and they said, "You know, you know, hello, this is you know Visa fraud alert, blah blah blah." I said, "Okay, you know, we're trying to clear this." up and they said oh yes right away we're going to clear this up for you no problem before we do wanted to let you know you're the you know thousandth caller today and you you win like a hundred dollar gift card if you'll just do this quick survey and i'm like oh oh okay and normally i'd be skeptical of that but i called them i called visa all right so i called visa right so it's visa so they said all right well you know what's your account number i give them the account uh you know the name on the account number okay um, and they start asking more information, you know, what's your, what's your, the billing address and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, they should have this, yeah. you know, and I'm starting to get suspicious, but I called them. This is, yeah. Lisa. and I said, all right. And, you know, and they said, all right, so we're going to send you out the, uh, the hundred dollars. Uh, it's going to be in a, you know, it'll be a check made out to you. We'll send yeah. it to the billing address you gave us, blah, blah, blah. Um, you do need, we're going to FedEx that. So you do need to pay like $2 and 95 cents. Like, you know, you know, that's fair trade, I guess, you know, whatever. And so we, I said, all right, well transfer me over to the, you know, the fraud department. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. You know, and then we got disconnected. I was like, oh, I said to my sister, did that smell right to you? That whole interaction? She goes, no, that was, yeah, that was sketch. But you know, but we, we called them. That was, that was visas. I said, all right, pull up the number we just called and let's double check the number. <laughs> right. So we, okay. we look at the number we pull up on the, on the most recent numbers. It was one digit off. So the scammers, oh, the scammers got the number wow. that was wow. one digit wow. off. So rather than an eight, it was a five or whatever it was. So I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. You know? All right. So we call, we call visa. We're like, Hey, there's a charge that's going to be going through. Uh, number one, don't pay that. They go, yeah, we just saw this, you know, it's like four ninety five, yeah. and, and uh, we'll reject that. I said, okay. They said it was going to be two ninety five, but anyway, so <laughs> I said, cancel the card. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll cancel. We'll give you a new number. Uh, so we, we had to cancel the whole card because of that. But anyway, I was like, I got to give them credit. It was clever. That is clever. At least if you're going to scam me, at least be clever. That's what I said. You I know? had to give them props. Yeah. yeah. At least I at least then I can appreciate the creativity and maybe for the price of four dollars ninety five cents you get a story <laughs> out of it. Um, our guest today is an expert in cybercrime, and if you're interested in how to protect your business from the threat of cybercrime and who is be. increasing in our day and age, then stick around. Jeff Lanza was an FBI special agent for over twenty years, during which he investigated cybercrime. He was more or less one of the original agents to uh, focus his career on cybercrime when he started working with the FBI. He focused on organized crime, human trafficking, and terrorism. He's lectured at Harvard and Princeton, written two critically acclaimed books. He's all over TV talking about the growing threat of cybercrime in today's life. Um, And today he's on our podcast, so stick around. Uh, we promise not to scare you too much, but I think you'll learn a little bit, and I think you'll be glad that you did. My name is Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Decidedly. <laughs> 
Hey, Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Good. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. Thank you for having me. I assume that you're going to scare me today, and I'll give you full permission to do that. <laughs> Is this the first time you've been interviewed by the FBI? It, uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, well, that's good. You know, shockingly, the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, how did you get into working with the FBI? You were in the corporate world before that, and you got recruited in by the FBI. Tell me that how that happened. Yeah, so I wanted to be an FBI agent since I was a kid. Uh, I mean, growing up watching television shows um, on a Sunday night on uh, the three, one of the three networks that you could watch, you had a choice of Lassie, The World of Disney, and uh, a show called The FBI starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Um, this dates back to the late 1960s and early 70s, but I watched that show and I thought, hey, I'd like to solve these kind of crimes in 60 minutes, you know? Sounds like an exciting career. Um, so, but I wasn't qualified to get in the FBI when I graduated from college, even though I had a criminal justice degree, that's not the type of degree the FBI really seeks out, believe it or not. What do, they, of, what do they seek out? They look for people that have accounting skills. They look for lawyers. They hire people with engineering skills, computer science, foreign language. All, all of that sounds far less exciting than, uh, yeah, criminal justice sounds <laughs> way more fun. <laughs> Uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence that usually people get in the military. Um, yeah, so I went to work for Xerox coming out of coming out of school after I got an MBA. Um, but in in my job with Xerox, I was a uh, I was a computer specialist. I I I learned all about how to uh, how to program uh, some of Xerox's uh, laser printers. And that experience, that that computer science experience, is what the FBI was looking for at the time they hired me. So. That well, got me what were they the, wanting you to do in the FBI with that kind of background? Uh, cyber cybercrime was, um, now we're talking about 1988. It wasn't really anybody's yeah. radar screen in terms of what we're seeing today, but it was something the FBI was thinking about in terms of, we're we need going to need a, 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 some specialists that can dedicate um, you know uh, their their investigative skills to, invest, to, to basically looking at these crimes that they expected were going to come with the computer age. Oh, so they were looking at kind of like right now how we're looking at AI saying, oh, there's a lot of threats that may come. So they hire you to come in and go, hey, you know more about computers than yeah, the next Yeah, because this is, this is pre-internet, you know, at that point. Yeah, that must have required some foresight on their part. Yeah, you know, now we're nobody heard of a phishing email. Nobody heard of email. Um, and so, uh, but there were other types of, of things that uh, that, you know, I... That an agent with my background could work, including white collar crime in in a general sense, public corruption cases, fraud, and that's what I was assigned to um, for most of my early part of my career. Anyway, what were some of the things that you saw at that time? So, you know, another reason why I wanted to get in the FBI is because um, I was fascinated with the mob, um, and if you go back in the 1980s, we didn't have the internet. But we had huge uh, issues with mafia presence uh, in all the major cities, including Kansas City, where I was sent to. And uh, so I was excited to, for the opportunity to work to work the mob, uh, to do mafia investigations. And uh, organized crime was uh, on the top of the FBI's priority list at that time. So when I got to Kansas City, we had a major organized crime case where they were skimming money from Las Vegas casinos. If you've ever seen the movie casino, it kind of is based on that story. The mob family in Kansas City was involved in that skimming operation where they were taking money from the casino count rooms and bringing it back to Kansas City. And that case um, ended before I got to Kansas City as a new FBI agent. But there were still some remnants of the mob uh, family here and throughout the country that were doing other things as well. But the one thing that sticks out more than anything, it helps illustrate where the mob had come uh, to the point they had come to in 1988. So we're on a wiretap on a mobster's phone. And, you know, when you want to, when you get to the FBI and you're a new agent, you usually get put on, you know, the duties that a lot of senior agents don't want to work. But listening to a wire is actually very important and requires a lot of, um, a lot of training. And you got to know when to, uh, you know, when to turn off the microphone and turn it back on and how to listen properly so you get the evidence that you need. So we had a, a mobster's uh, a phone tapped. His name was Tony. 
and uh, he gets a call from from Joe. Now, as the FBI listens, here's how it goes. Tony says, Joe, uh, I'm really glad you called. And Joe goes, yeah, why? Tony goes, I got a little problem. I think the FBI is tapping my phone. And Joe goes, oh, yeah? Well, what are you going to do about it? And Tony says, well, I, I got a new number. So lacking any common sense, Joe goes, okay, good. Give me the number. Now, Tony gets, a, <laughs> Tony gets a, just a tiny bit of common sense. He says, well, I better not give it to you on the phone. I'll meet you for lunch and I'll, I'll give it to you then. And Joe says, well, I, I can't meet you for lunch. Tony says, okay, well, I'll give it to you now over the phone, but, but I'll give it to you backwards. Yeah. So he gave him the seven digit <laughs> order, reverse order. What did the FBI do? We got our best cryptologists on that one right away. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's sort of enigma me. machine job there. That's right. It took us six months with the powerful computers we had in 1988. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it tells you where the mob had come to at that point in time. And, and uh, but then also it illustrates a key point to what I like to talk about today with audiences is, you know, uh, common sense is, is important in everyday life, but it's also important to prevent fraud. And what criminals try to do is manipulate our thinking when, when it comes to computers and phishing emails and the most common scams that people are victimized by. It's, uh, it's all related to common sense. And if we used a little more common sense and not let emotions take over, uh, we'll be less likely to be victimized. So that story really has some meaning even today as we as we talk about how to stay safe from from these cyber threats for the average yeah, person. Yeah, I, I would think the biggest vulnerability on cybersecurity is the human element because you know that's where we crack. You know, I don't think there's anybody in there trying to run some algorithm on you know my phone or my my laptop. They're right. just hoping I mess up and fall for some stupid thing. I did, I got a deal uh, over Christmas that well, I looked at it and I would I would imagine it was going out to millions of people, which was, you know, your package has been delayed, you know, click this to, you know, to track it. Well, I, yeah. di I didn't because I didn't have any packages out that were And they delayed. don't even tell you where it's from. No, no. It's it had like a little generic package. Yeah. <laughs> it's had like a UPS logo on the bottom. I'm like, I didn't order it. You know, I've got all my stuff. Yeah. But the, you, around that time of year, you would imagine a good percentage of the people are going to fall for that. They're going like, oh yeah. yeah, you know, grandma's shirt never did show up, you know, click on it. Uh, no, I, I would just think, what was the worst deal you ever saw on, on cybersecurity breaches? Uh, well, I mean, just just recently. Well, I'll, I'll go back a little bit in time and then tell you about some recent ones as well. But yeah, when, when I was still working for the FBI, we had a, a case where a, a company uh, got uh, scammed what's, by what's called a business email compromise. And if, if people in the audience that are listening to this podcast um, if you are small business, medium-sized business owner, or even large business owners, please pay careful attention to what I'm going to say next because it's still happening today, right? So an email comes to the CFO in the company and requests a wire transfer to China. Now, the CEO happened to be in China doing business, which was a normal course of operations for this uh, for this company. Uh, but the the criminals had hijacked the email account or spoofed it to make it look like uh, yeah. It was real email of the executive requested a wire transfer. We can't talk about this right now. Uh, it's very sensitive. Don't tell anybody. Just send this wire. And it was like, you know, $8.2 million or something like that. And that pales in comparison to some other ones that have been even more than that, all based on hijacking an email account and acting like you're the CEO asking for money for from a underling in the company. So- that's happening all the time. Millions and millions of dollars are being lost uh, based on that scam alone. And then the other one that more recently occurred was the ransomware attack. And we've seen a lot of these, by the way. There's some in the news today that are affecting people who are trying to close on houses, but they can't do it because the title company's computers have been locked up. But that's going on as we kind of speak now. But um, look at two... Uh, well, well, what's the what's the benefit of the what are the hackers trying to accomplish by scrambling the computers of the title company? Getting a ra getting a ransom payment. Um, oh, so what they're just shutting down the whole business and say, Correct. okay, the computers are locked up. How how often is that effective? You know, if you find if I'm running a title company and they scramble or they hack in and lock up my computer system, how often are people? Paying that bending over, just paying the money versus just going down the tubes, or what happens on that? 
Yeah. So, you know, we don't have figures on that, that, uh, that specifically uh, tell us who's paying and who's not paying. Because when companies pay, sometimes they don't report it to the FBI. Uh, and sometimes companies don't want to report it even if they, even if they don't pay. Uh, so we don't really have a lot of figures on that. But but to help answer your question, uh, Sean, let's look at the tale of two companies. Everybody's heard of MGM. Everybody's heard of Caesar. So hotel, casino chains. In September, both companies and- were hacked with a ransomware attack, which is basically simply a piece of malware that propagates through their computer network, locks up their computers, so you pretty much can't do anything. Payroll, your computers don't run in a company. That they're, at MGM, if you wanted to place a bet at one of their kiosks uh, in their casino, there is a there is an emoji of a sad, frowning face. Sorry, you can't do it. Really? That's what you use to express that you've had this ransomware attack? <laughs> so, yeah, you can place a bet. And, and ask me how I know all this, by the way. Anyway, so, <laughs> so uh, MGM, the ransomware uh, request to get the key that unlocks the malware that encrypted their data on their computers, the the request was for $30 million. So to answer your question, Sean, that's the payout, right? That's where they're making their profit. If they pay the money, they get the key, then it's going to be less time uh, to require to get back up and running. All right. So MGM refused to pay, right? They didn't want to pay the $30 million. And According to the Wall Street Journal, it was going to cost them $100 million to get back up and running again in terms of downtime, lost business, lost betting, whatever, $100 million. So you could see the incentive to pay the money is probably um, you know, what's making companies pay. Now, on the other hand, Caesars decided to pay the ransom and they paid, uh, they bargained it down to $15 million. They paid, according to published reports, again, Wall Street Journal, to get their encryption key so it would take less time to get back up and running. So- the profit is the reason why they're doing it. Uh, the criminals is because of profit. Um, they're making a lot of money. If you can make $15 million by sending somebody an email that has a piece of malware attached to it that locks up a computer network for a company, why not do it? And that's what we're seeing happening across the board, not just at these two casino operators. So a lot of people hear that and they get really scared because they go, okay, yeah, I recognize scams all the time, but I only recognize the ones that I recognize Surely, what if there's ones that are really good and they don't misspell UPS or they don't, (laughs) you know, they don't do something stupid that sets off my common sense because they're not stupid criminals. So they create something smart. Yeah. Right. What do you have to say about that? Well, you know, there's several layers that a company could use to help stay safe from these things. First of all, you educate employees, you send test emails, you say, you know, you send one that looks like a, like a fake email and see how many employees click on it. That helps a little bit, but really, two weeks later, they'll be clicking on it, even if they've been received remedial training, right? They're going to click on it the the next time it happens. That may help a little bit. Then you have antivirus software, which prevents some of those things from getting through. So that's a perimeter of security. And when it gets past antivirus software, you may be able to prevent it from getting through the whole system if you catch it quickly enough. So even if it did, for the real good stuff that that you may not notice and you may you may click on Sager because it doesn't it isn't misspelled and AI is being used to make it look more realistic and not have the syntax or spelling errors which is what's happening as well today. Um, there's other there's other uh, stoppage points. There's other ways that it'll be stopped. And then ultimately, if they have their computer backed up in a certain way. They should be able to recover quickly without paying a ransom. But not all those companies are not prepared for these things. So how is a company as big as Caesars not doing what you just articulated sounds very simple. Mm-hmm. How is a company of that size with as much to lose not, how do they not do that? Yeah. I, I, for the backup, I don't know. You know, they, they should at least have that as the final point. If, if the worst thing happens... They should be able to recover without paying a ransom. And we take profit away from the criminals, then they're not going to keep doing it if there's no profit incentive. Right. It, it would seem like you can log in remotely through through those passwords, go back to yesterday's backup, and mm-hmm. be up and running. I mean, I don't, I don't understand how it's you know, getting locked up like that. Yeah. From a technical standpoint, the criminals are smart enough now to encrypt the backup. So they go into a system. I mean, they steal credentials. It's not just phishing emails. I mean, that's one way they get in with malware and things like that. They also get credentials. They steal credentials from people who have weak passwords potentially, or they trick customer service reps into 
uh, thinking that they're, um, you know, to allow them to get in uh, to a certain uh, to a certain level of uh, of uh, uh, of access, and then they up that that access to get into higher and higher levels of access. They're really I heard, good. I heard one story of some company. Uh, this was back in the days so, when you know with UPS drives, and they went in front of this company and just dropped several UPS drives in front of the front door in the employee entrance. That had the malware on it. Oh wow! And people just pick them up off the ground. It's like, oh, let's oh, see what wonder, this wonder, is. Yeah. Wonder whose Christmas card pictures are on this thing? <laughs> it just wow. Put them on there. That's like there's that's like the Mike Leach. This is totally not cybersecurity related. You know, you know Mike Leach. Oh he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. He was a former uh, Texas Tech, uh, Washington State, Mississippi State head coach. Um, he when he was offensive coordinator at OU. OU mm-hmm. and the University of Texas. Oh, I've heard this story. I love this. I love. He it. wants to sabotage the other team so he creates a fake playbook and had one of the like graduate assistants run by the sidelines of the of the longhorns players during warm-ups and drop it on the floor <laughs> and they pick it up and they're like preparing their defensive schemes for these totally bs plays um it's like hard to believe that stuff that simple and goofy can work but i i guess it can i'm always amazed at the size of companies that uh, or that the attacks that seem to have simple prevention methods that large companies still allow themselves to be vulnerable to, but for a smaller company that's maybe saying, hey, I don't have the resources of Caesars of MGM and I'm still, I'm I'm doing the things that Jeff's saying to do, but is that enough? Um, what What would you say to a family business owner who's wondering, hey, is is what I have by following these simple steps, is that enough to keep you safe? I would say if they're if they're using what's called the three, two, one uh, rule of backups, they're, they're, they're probably going to be okay. So it's three copies of all your of all your files in uh, two different places, and at least one of them is offsite. So um, so that would be like, you know, you have your stuff on your on your computer. Let's just take an example of a small network in a company. It's on the computer. Those are your production files. That's what you're working with every day, or Excel spreadsheets and so forth. And all the stuff that customers are, are 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 customer information that's needed to run the business, right? So that's your one one copy of your files, yeah. one copy. Second copy may be uh, on a on a on a backup drive, uh, but make that off site, you know. So if something happens, it's less likely that they could get uh, get to that that off site copy that's backed up. And the worst that can happen is maybe you lose a day. Um, and then you put a copy in the cloud as a third as a third uh, option. Um, so you got three, you got your files in three different places, um, and at least one of them is offsite. And uh, and also using two different medium. That's the two part I didn't mention. So you may even have backup tape. They can't get to the tapes. You back up the tape. You take it off the system. It can't be. They can't get to that because it's not connected to the internet. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I did eight years ago. I had an intern that came and worked for us, and I was just being a jerk. I was having him shred a bunch of stuff that was uh, confidential information for a client. I said, you know, just take this over the shredder and, you know, just, you know, just shred all this, but, you know, just in case, make a copy of everything first, you know, from Russia. He's like, yeah, I guess, sir, boss. Here, what are you doing? Was that like a test? That was like an intelligence yeah, it was a test and he failed. That's the common sense that leaves your company vulnerable, Jeff. Wow, that's crazy. Man. So you were, you were telling a story about the the CEO that's over in China and calls to the CFO and says, "Hey, wire this money." So, how do companies prevent that kind of uh, that kind of vulnerability, particularly yeah. with voice spoofing AI, you know, voice recognition type stuff? Yeah. In the case I mentioned, it wasn't a phone call. It probably wouldn't have happened if it was a phone call. It was it, it was just basically an email? I can't talk. Um, we can't talk on the phone. So, pay attention to these instructions. It's the only ones you're going to get. Um, so you, you can't defend against that ex- unless you don't pay attention to the instructions and you pick up the phone and you verify. And that's all I had to do would have prevented that from happening. Now you got voice spoofing, you got AI recording videos or, or voices of CEOs, and then they can make it sound like the real person. Um, uh, another trick the criminals are using is they're taking AI and they're scanning uh, annual reports uh, CEOs always write letters in annual reports. The opening letter, usually the first couple of pages, they right. use that language that the CEO, how they talk, 
um, that type of verbiage is plugged into AI and then used to craft emails to wow. working underneath them so they'll be more convincing. You know, send me this money. This has to be done right away. You can't call me back uh, because of uh, of this unique nature of this situation. You know, yeah, that- a lot of times those types of emails, you know, the ones that I've seen, I I immediately recognize a flag because there's a the grammar, grammar the they misspell a very common word in the English language, or they're pretending to be someone I know, and they're talking different. I'm like, right? They're not. They're not talking like somebody. John doesn't talk like that. Sean doesn't have run-on sentences that go forever and ever. What's a you know? That's goofy. Um, I had one a few months ago where an employee at my company sends me an email from another employee and says, "Hey, see this? He needs to change his info for payroll." And so I ju- I I just go okay cool and I start making the change and all of a sudden like I just something goes off I'm like obviously I need to check and call because if this was a client that was having me change his account number I would call him so I'm going to treat my employee the same as a client and as I pick up the phone to call him I'm like wait a second <laughs> this doesn't say before he even answers I'm like. He's not doing this. He wouldn't. Right. Why would he have just called me? And then as soon as he answered, I go, "You didn't send me this email, did you?" He goes, "What are you talking about?" I go, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> I had I had that years ago. There was a uh, an email I got supposedly from a from a client. She'd said, "You know, I'm I'm in Europe. I'm stuck. I you know I need you know yeah. some money to you know get back or whatever like that." And yeah. uh, you know, I happen to know I ran out of minutes on my phone. I can't call. Right? You. Yeah, yeah. Just send send me money. You know, to this account. You know, I need it. I was like, well, first of all, I know this client. You know, there's no way this person's in Europe. You wouldn't right? have even gone to Europe, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so I happen to know this, so, but you know, we always call. We always call, like you're saying. You know, call first. I think that's that's the best way. Obviously, well, they picked the wrong client in this particular case. They should have picked well, one that yeah. traveled to you. But let's take that a step further. So um, I'm going to an- anonymize this as much as possible. So I just gave a speech a few weeks ago at a big conference for an association. And I wanted to find an example of this that was very specific to this to this particular industry. And I found one. And somebody received an, an email from a supposed vendor. They looked online. They saw at this particular organization that a vendor had been just about to finish up this huge construction project, right? And so they figured, all right, maybe they have some outstanding invoice that haven't been paid yet. So they dummied up an invoice and send it, uh, uh, or not dummied it up. They just basically sent an email and said, for this remaining invoice, please send it to this bank account instead of the one you've been sending it to. And they fell for it. And it was like a million dollars. And so anyway, that so I, I told the association, I go, I'm going to use this example. Is anybody in the group going to uh, be in that? Would they possibly be the victim, be in that, in that audience? Oh, they're definitely going to be there. And I didn't want to embarrass anybody, so I couldn't use that particular example. But they did send the money. All you got to do is pick up the phone. Think about this, guys. How many times do businesses change bank accounts? And how many times do they change bank accounts? Right when there's an outstanding right. invoice for a million dollars that's about to be paid. <laughs> oh, you know, we're just happening to change our bank account. We're getting a better deal uh, at this bank instead of this bank. And by the way, send the million bucks there. Does that even make sense? Again, common sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really, um, I think the, the optimism here is that by- educating people and simply making people aware, it sounds like we can avoid a lot of these issues. You know, if people are, I think I have to think that the reason people fall for something like that is they can't believe that it's actually a threat, right? You know, we don't, nobody, none of those people who are sending million dollar wires are probably pulling up to a dirty gas station on the east side of town and leaving their car unlocked while they go in. Hey, right. (laughs) They're, They're with their purse on the dash. Right. They're not doing that. Well, they're because they're aware of the risks. Right? We've got to be aware of the the cybercrime risks. You were talking about passwords earlier. People steal credentials by um, getting access through weak passwords. In my experience, a lot of my clients don't understand what a weak password is, um, and I'll I'll find out one way or another. Say, hey, log into log into your site real quick and let's check it out. And I see it's like five characters. I go, geez, <laughs> what are we doing? What are the elements of a strong password? So uh, traditionally, it's been it has to be at least eight characters, have upper and lowercase, uh, and a, a symbol. 
know, you know, a special symbol like dollar sign, exclamation point, quotation mark, you know, anything like that. Um, uh, and that's what our National Institute of Standards and Technology has recommended for years, up until about five years ago. And because of the complexity of that, and because people don't want to come up with those type of passwords, or if they do, because it's required for a website or to get access, they will use that same one every time for all their accounts. So then yeah. you have a breach at one place and the criminals use something called credential stuffing. They figure out what the password is and then they use it across other accounts that people have. And then they, that credential stuffing um, technique is then used to hack into accounts. So NS, NIST, National Institute of Standards Technology, a few years ago said, let's not use complicated passwords anymore. Let's go to passphrases. So think about something that's unique for an account and only use it for that account. So let's use an example, um, uh, Amazon, right? So you try to come up with a password for Amazon, a passphrase. So instead of come up with uppercase A, lowercase C, B, three, five, Q, exclamation point. You know, how are you going to remember that, number one? And then if you just use that for everything, then you're putting yourself at risk. So here's a unique one for Amazon. What's unique about Amazon? They have free delivery with Prime. It used to be two days. And it's like one day. Sometimes it's same day, depending on where you live. I think Amazon's moving towards a new model. It's going to be free delivery yesterday. So here we go. So there's my passphrase for Amazon. Free delivery yesterday. All one word, all lowercase, acceptable to Amazon, only use it there. And, you know, this is just an example, but you don't use it for your credit card site. You don't use it for an email account. Sure. And so, it sounds like we know Jeff's uh, Amazon uh, password. I'm about, about to right order so right much. <laughs> yeah. 23, 23 and me had a big hack. It was well publicized. And they at first said it wasn't our fault. It's because people were reusing passwords that had been uh, breached before from you know LinkedIn and Yahoo and all those yeah, other yeah. they had. And the most common passwords people were using were monkey. You know, m monkey. Why is that a common password? I have no idea. Anyway. So I thought of something for 23andMe, so it's unique for 23andMe. I don't know if you know about this, but people are uploading their DNA that they get back from 23andMe to these public sites, and it's being used to identify criminals, usually through second or third cousins that have committed crimes a long time ago, cold cases, uh, and uh, and it's been very successful. Uh, detectives have solved a lot of cold cases. The Golden State Killer, responsible for murders going back decades, was caught that way. Several other like wow. that, too. So I like this one for 23andMe, if you did have an account there. All right, here it is. So, my third cousin is wanted by the FBI. <laughs> Do I have there. to include my third cousin's uh, full legal name so you can find him, Jeff? Just to make that longer. <laughs> what, it, 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 the point that you're making is something that I heard from another expert in the field is that complexity is not necessarily as important as length, right? I mean, sure, of course, you could have, a, you know, just because it's a simple password that's four characters is not necessarily better than a weird random three characters. Um, it doesn't, it's not a linear relationship, but length is really, really yeah. important for password security. 12, 12 characters should be the minimum for a phrase. Um, have you seen that password... Uh, passwordstrengthmeter.com. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. Have you seen no. that? What, what is that? So you can go like test how strong a password is and it gives you, um, based on the password that you put in, it'll show you how long it would take a hacker to like force oh, their way to it. Yeah. yeah. So you should go check it out and put your own password in there and go, you'll be shocked. Like, oh, this will take 47 seconds for a hacker right. to get in. You add like, a phrase to the end and just say that maybe you could just write, this is my password at the end. Those yeah. characters. Now it's like a thousand years. When Correct. they measure the length of time that it takes to crack in, what does that mean? Because is there some like computer that's auto because the way it's always been described to me is, Oh, well they have a computer that just tries randomly generated passwords until they figure it out. Um, how does that work? Because when I try my password and I get it wrong three times, I've got to call the corporate office. And yeah, so locks, it locks me out. Yeah. So how how is that working? Not everything's not everything locks you out. Uh, there's uh, email accounts like Yahoo. They won't lock you out. You could try it a million times and you're not going to lock you out. 
um, oh, for example. Okay. But you know, you're right. Your corporate computers, they better lock you out after three times. Um, but so that wouldn't work in that, in those cases. Uh, but the brute force hacking for uh, for sites where they don't lock you out after three times, you know, you just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Brute force is using powerful software and computers just to guess random combinations until it hits on the right one. Um, oh, and if you use the same password for everything, then they're yeah. going to have your password that does lock you out. Yeah, and and think about this too. If if um if I if I fall for one of these phishing emails from from uh, Gmail, so so Google sends me an email, not Google, but the the correct criminal copies all the logos and everything. Um, you're you're in danger of losing your your Gmail access. Uh, someone's hacked into your account. Change your password right away. Change it here. They put up a fake page. Yeah. So basically, you give your your password to the to the to the bad guy. They go to your Gmail account, they log in, and if you don't have two factor authentication, which I can talk about in a second, then they're in your Gmail account, and then they're looking through your Gmail and they see, oh, this guy's getting emails from uh, from Chase Credit Card Company. He must uh, have a Chase account. Let's go to the Chase account and plug in that same that same password that he that uh, he used over here. And if he's using the same one, bada bing, bada boom, they're in that one too, and it can go on from there. Which is why two-factor authentication is another way to keep safe. Everybody should be using that for, at a minimum for your email accounts, social media, which are targets for criminals, yeah. and also for financial accounts. So you get a code sent to your phone, or you get an authenticator app where you say, "Yes, this is me trying to log in." And your criminal could be six miles away or six thousand miles away. They can't log in. They don't have the phone in their hand, so they they're not going to be able to use the app to log in or put that code in. So a friend of mine had a coworker who got his entire checking and savings account wiped out. Yeah. And my first question was, "How did that happen?" Oh, they got in. They got his password. And I go, "Well, I have two factor authentication on my bank account. Does he not have two factor authentication on his bank account?" And he said, "Here's the crazy thing. He did." I said, "Well, how then? How did he hack in?" He said, "Somehow the hackers got remote access to his phone." Uh, have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that, but m more commonly than getting remote access to the phone, and, and you know, Apple's are going to be hard to do that on the the iPhone is very difficult for that to happen. Android m more likely because you can download the apps for, for an Android in different places. You might download it from a you know a bogus place and get malware on the phone, which can do what you're saying. More commonly, though, uh, Sanger, it's where there's something called the SIM card swap happens, where they call up Verizon. And they know the guy uses Verizon because again they got into his email account and and they say hey this is uh, this is Jeff I have uh, you know I, I've got a new phone I lost my phone I need to to reset my phone number to this device that I'm holding in my hand and they ask you a few questions you know what's your mother's maiden name what's your birth date where'd you go to high school and they know all that because they found it on Facebook and, uh, yeah. and then all of a sudden now they have all the texts. And the phone calls come to the new phone in the hands of a criminal, and uh, they get those those two factor text. And it sounds like um, AT and T is a little bit liable, or Verizon, or whoever's doing that. Couldn't I would want them if somebody called, some criminal called up and said, "Send me a new SIM card." I'd want AT and T to say, "Okay, well, let's at least call the old number." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like ask. They don't do that. Doesn't sound like they do, and I think that the main thing we should do is to call our cell phone provider when you have an hour to stay on hold, right? And then just say, "Hey, I want a password set up or a pin code set up. If anybody's going to make changes on this account, um, make sure they know this." Yeah, pin. yeah, I've got I've got that on on my stuff, the password, and then I also froze all my credit report stuff. That just, is such a hack that nobody knows about, and almost every time I tell people about freezing your Right, they go, I didn't know this was possible, or they go, I don't want to pay for it. And I go, you don't have to pay for it. It's so easy. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, no, nobody can, I, I can, the problem is if I change, you know, electricity providers or something, I have to unfreeze it. Yeah, no, that big, it's, it's, it's and not that never deal. happens. I, I have had clients who say, oh, you know, my, my brother-in-law, he just got his checking account cleaned out by some hacker. I go, okay, well, here's the rundown of things that I want you to do to be safe. And they're usually worried about like their investment account. I go, okay, that's probably the safest thing you have. Let's talk about your bank account. Make sure you have a good password on there. Um, yeah. Make sure you're not 
keep you're not swiping a debit card on a, your checking account that has a million dollars in it. You know, if you're going to swipe a debit card, swipe it on your $5,000 account and keep your million dollar account. Nobody knows about, and you don't ever use that number. Um, and then I say, freeze your credit. That's the easiest thing you can do. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to. Oh, that costs money. Oh, that's inconvenient. Because what yeah. if what if when I want to go buy a house, I have to spend 15 minutes on hold with TransUnion? <laughs> right. And I go, uh, that sounds better than. Yeah, it's totally worth it. No, it's identity but you'll forget. So I forgot that I had frozen mine. And I went to, as I said, change electricity providers. And the new provider comes back and said, oh, you know, you're rejected. I'm like, I'm, re- I'm rejected for electricity and they're like yeah we're not gonna cover you i'm like what? they're like well we you know you, you didn't pass the credit report i said what are you talking about it passed like they're like well, we couldn't get one i said oh that's different and then i remembered hey, i feel the information yeah, buddy. Right. then i remembered oh yeah let, all right give me, give me 10 minutes let me unfreeze this I had, uh, I had a funny one at um when i went to go buy a house a few years ago the guy goes okay hey um Get me, and I had thought I had unfrozen them already. He goes, um, same deal. Hey, I'm going to run a report and see what we can get. And he comes back and he goes, uh, we're going to, you know, do a 3% interest or whatever. And I was like, really? I mean, at the time, like interest rates were lower. I go, that doesn't seem, that seems like a little high for, for what the market is. And he goes, yeah. I go, you ran all three current reports? He goes, well, we ran Equifax and Experian. I go, why do you run TransUnion? He goes, oh, well, we couldn't get through. It was frozen. I go, well, how are you ever yeah. run it again? And he runs it again. And he goes, oh, it's 2.6. I just. Yeah, you could have boned me. Yeah, you, I would have paid so much more for no reason just because you were lazy. Uh, but other than that, you should freeze your credit. Freezing is really easy and it's free and you, it keeps you safe from lots of fraud. I highly recommend it. When I talk to my audiences, especially wealth advisors and their clients. <laughs> First thing I say in the presentation, freeze your credit reports, easy to do, and you'll be glad you did it when they try to get, you know, some credit in your name using the stolen identity of your social with your social security number, which is out there. It's probably for sale on the dark web right now. Yeah. I feel like at this day and age, I could buy a billboard in downtown and put my social security number on it, and I would be at the exact same level of security risk as I am right now. Wasn't there somebody who tried that? Some guy? I'm like cybersecurity oh, guy. Yeah, he put it Did on. It work out? <laughs> no, he got hacked. No worry. <laughs> that was a LifeLock guy. That was his a LifeLock guy. That's right. He put it on a billboard, and um, but he was using fraud alerts. This is before freezing was a common thing. This company used fraud alerts, and sometimes companies that that process you know new accounts don't even pay attention to fraud alerts, and that's what happened in that particular case, I believe. No way, he got hacked. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yeah. I remember they, better they, was laughing. Somebody took the social off uh, off the billboard or or his van. He was driving around on a truck in a van, and uh, as marketing, and they opened an account in his name. And then you know he was on a Today Show trying to explain uh, you know what happened. That's why a just- it w- no wait. So he he goes on the where, did he do like a a pot, like a what do you call it, like a saving face tour and say oh it actually wasn't that bad they didn't steal. Well, how do you recover from that as the lifelock guy? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think they did because they got bought out by Norton, um, and uh, he, you know, I think they did pretty well. You know, they always say though, guys, that uh, no, no publicity, or excuse me, any publicity is good publicity, even if it's bad. I so guess. Speaking of that, that would have been life something life. I would be so I get, afraid to uh, share. This this just happened a couple months ago. So I get, I get this thing from, you know, it said it was LifeLock, and it said, hey, we're, you know, we're gonna um, bill your account. For you know, three hundred forty-five dollars for this year. I was like, "What? What is this? Like, what is this all about?" And so I, I, stupid, I called the number, and they're like, "Oh, yes, yes, sir, we are going to bill your account." I'm like, "Oh, like what account? Uh, your the credit card on file." I'm like, "What credit card? Uh, the the one that we have." <laughs> and, and I'm like, "But you can you can change it if you you know like." And then they were trying to get information from me. Oh, do you want to do a different one? Give me that one. Yeah, give me, yeah, if you want to change it, like, you know, why do you want, and it's like, you guys don't, like, they didn't have anything. Like, oh, they, wow. it was just some bullshit. Yeah. But anyway, I almost fell for it. I called That's it anyway, wild. rather than just so, deleting it. Jeff, this, uh, this will frustrate you, Jeff. So yeah. I had, um, 
I was trying to, I don't know what I was doing, move money to go buy something. So I'm moving account stuff around and I get a fraud alert from Chase, like a text message. And it, it was simple. It was like, was this you or not? You know, one or two. And so I felt comfortable responding. Yeah, that was me. And then I get a call and I answer the call and they're saying, well, it's fraud alert from Chase. We're calling to verify. And now I immediately have a red flag because I go, you already texted me and I already responded. Why would I also be getting this call? Mm-hmm. And so it was a little bit suspicious the way they were asking me questions and the way they were, um, you know, talking to me about it. So as I'm talking with them and they're asking me, what's your social, what's your address, what's your number? I'm like, uh, hold on. You know, you're not asking me to confirm anything. You're getting new information from me. So I Google like the, the 1877 number and then I go, is this like fraud or not? And there were like five different articles about this number's fraud. So I just hang up. I go, five different websites said that's a fraudulent number. So then the ultimately I find out like, you know, a few hours later, that money never went through. And I go, what the heck? I confirmed it with the text. And so I call Chase back and they're like, oh no, we got a fraud alert. And I go, oh, so that was real? So then I say, what's your fraud alert number? And they go, 877-da-da-da-da-da, the one that called me earlier that I looked up and said was fraud. And I go, hold on. So I call the number. I go, guys, I just need to let y'all know there's articles online that say this is a scam. (laughs) That say your number is a scam and you're calling me asking for my social security number. And they were like, ah, man, I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do? It's not ghost. Jeez. Yeah. But you know, you got to check for those fraud alerts because they can be fake. That was a weird situation that you experienced. But so another quick story, this guy that told told me what happened to him is a client of mine who I was doing an event for his clients. He says he got a text message. Did you make a $7,500 transfer from your account? And it said in the text message, it had the name of his bank, you know, so they were spoofing it, right? But it wasn't his bank. It was actually a, you know, someone put out a fraud, a fake fraud alert. So he says no, presses and no, immediately gets a phone call in the text message or in the phone caller ID, name of his bank, you know, again, spoofed. Oh, we're going to help you resolve this issue. We're going to transfer your money to a safe account. Now, how many banks are going to tell you that, that your yeah. money in our account is not safe? We're going to move it to another place where it is safe. Does that make any sense? Why, did, why didn't you give me the safe account to start with, dude? Yeah, I know. Start exactly. me out in the safe account. Grained out, yeah. fifty grand out, fifty grand out. He got it oh, back. Oh wow! Not after a, a lot of hassle. So, you know, as fraud alerts, you got to watch out for those too because they could be fake fraud alerts. Yeah, that's scary. I, I now I just I think you you're going to make me so skeptical. I'm not going to trust anyone. And you know, the bottom line is, you just have to check your accounts all the time, right? It's not, we don't live in a day and age where you wait for your monthly statement to come every 30 days and you can look at all the transactions and balance your checking account. Who does that anymore? But um, the truth is, now you can look at your account on your phone in a matter of seconds. You don't have to put a password in. Use your face ID. Everything looks okay today. And I'm not going to be worried about my bank account because nothing suspicious has happened. Do that at least a couple times a week, you know, Um, just in case, just in case something's happened. And it's easy to do. What what is uh what do businesses need to do um to inc- train their employees because you know large corporate companies can benefit from systems that prevent people from leaving them vulnerable or or big training uh, programs to help people understand the threats. What can small companies do that don't maybe have the resources to do uh, you know a big training push? Just verify transactions, especially when they're involving money or access. So what the criminals are looking for are two basic things. First of all, they go for your money. And if they can't get your money directly, they'll go for information which they can sell for money or use it to exploit a business or or extort them for ransom payments. So anytime there's an attempt to get information or money, you know, you trust it, but verify it. Yeah. Um, and especially for small companies, the, one other thing I'll mention here is that when you get emails they're from an external source, it, the flagging of the email uh, should be done through software that says, this is from an external source. A lot of companies are doing that, but not all. Don't click on links or attachments in this email unless you are absolutely sure 
of where it's coming from and you were expecting to get this attachment or a link and that you were expecting that from the source it was coming from. So that type of yeah. thing will help as well. What What's the scariest scam that you think is out there right now? I think the the one that's a, that's going after uh, um, senior citizens in the room. It's not just seniors, but um, they're a big target. Romance scams, um, and it, I say it's scary because um, it's a vulnerable uh, uh, yeah. target audience. Um, people have lost a loved one. Could be a widow or a widower. They go online. The criminals go online. They find obituaries. They target people specifically going after them because they know they might be in making poor decisions. And also fall for things like tech support scams or romance scams where you're trying to, you know, play on someone's loneliness. All right. Now on the tech support scam side, that's probably the more scary one uh, because uh, they're taking advantage of people that don't know a lot about a computer. They get a pop-up, they land somewhere in a website, they've clicked on a link and it says your computer's infected with malware, call this number and they get someone on the line that's very, very good at manipulating them. Oh, we're going to fix this problem for you. We need remote access to your computer. And they give them remote access because that's the easiest way to fix a problem, so they say. And then they could see, they ask them to log into their bank account. They could see how much money they have in there and then it could target them for further scams. They could put malware on their computer. They could steal information or even worse. Other part of that is when they want to get paid, not just those scams, but others, it's gift cards. If you hear those words, gift cards, in any in connection with any online communication, it is 100% of the time fraud. There's no legitimate reason why a business is going to ask you to yeah. pay them a gift card. The FBI does not have a warrant for you and you get out of it by paying with a gift card, nor do sheriff's departments. The tax authorities of the United States don't call you up and say you owe money on your last year's taxes, but we'll relieve you of the payment. If you just send us a gift card, you won't get penalized any further than you already have. No, it doesn't happen that way. But people are doing that. They're sending gift cards. They're buying them online. They're giving them the number over the phone. Uh, and they're going to physical locations, buying gift cards, and reading the number to the people, transferring money just like cash. Tech support scams, gift cards, romance scams. Lots of money being lost that way. What I'm what I'm really taking away from listening to you explain these is, you know, in a sober mind, all of these things sounds, or at least a lot of them sound really easily avoidable and, and kind of silly almost. Like, how did you fall for that? Um, but I my guess is that a lot of these people, if you sat down and asked them, hey, does that really make sense? Like, do you see why that would be maybe not likely that it's the reality is what's being presented to you? That most people are probably going to go, Oh yeah. Um, and the reason they don't is because they're at a place of high emotion. They're, yeah. they're either lonely or they're fearful, right? That all oh, the FBI is coming now they're scared. And there's some type of extreme positive or extreme negative emotion that's clouding their judgment. And that can happen in any area of life, not just cybercrime. It can yeah. happen in the hiring decisions that we make as business owners. It can happen in the, um, the way we spend our money. It, it, you know, non-fraudulently spend our money as business owners. It can happen a lot of different ways. When we're at extreme emotional points, we need to find a way to detach from that emotion. And that detachment first comes from recognizing what the emotion is. A lot of people are making decisions at, at high emotional peaks or valleys without even knowing what the emotion is that they're feeling. Like we've got to stop what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Okay. Right. How could that maybe be impacting me? Oh, it maybe is making me a little bit more excited to get this deal done than normal. And that awareness is the first step to, I think, gaining what you're calling the common sense that's yeah. going to allow you to avoid a lot of these scams. Yeah. It's fear, fear and greed are two big emotional drivers and they play off of both of those. You know, you want a lottery that you didn't enter, you know, um, you know, those type of things. That doesn't make sense. You'd have to pay money in an after you've won the lottery, you have to pay the taxes in advance on it before you get your million dollar payment. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. So all of these schemes uh, rely upon uh, some type of emotional hook. And when, you know, there's always going to be that. And never let emotions impede your ability to see things that don't make sense, right? Besides the emotion, something's not going to make sense, right? Sheriff's departments do not issue arrest warrants and let people pay the uh, the, the, the fine 
through a gift card over the phone, right? That doesn't make sense. So never let emotions, whether it's fear, greed, loneliness, which creates an emotional issue as well, never let that impede your ability to see the emotional hook. And if you do that, you're more than that. And, and I, I think you make a good point, Sanger. You know, when we look at it here, we're talking, you know, clear-minded. We're not emotionally invested in a situation. We're not in it. There's not urgency around our decision-making right now. And so it's easy to say, well, I wouldn't fall for it. I had a, uh, had a friend of mine a few years ago that her dad had fallen victim to one of these romance scams. And, and she knew it was a romance scam. And she had tried to communicate that to to her dad. It had all the classic signs. The person you know lived overseas. They could never meet face-to-face. And it just kind of- Never do going. a FaceTime. Right, never right. Skype, nothing. What do, you, what do you think someone could say- that could sort of break that mental block that that a victim is having as they're in the scam. What do you say to them to get them out? Sean, that's a that's a great question. Here, I'll start with what you don't say. Don't criticize them. Don't say how can you be so stupid because um, yeah. people will say that, and then you're causing the victim to retreat. Right? They're not going to tell. Oh, they're not going to say anything anymore. They're not going to tell you about it, and they want to rationalize their own behavior. I wasn't stupid. This is a real thing. I'm going to keep sending money to prove to myself that it wasn't a real thing because eventually this person is going to FaceTime me. Eventually, they're coming to the United States to meet me as they're promising. Yeah. So if you start to um, if you start to criticize them, then they pull away from you and they'll probably end up sending more money till they have no more money to send. So let's sit down, mom. Let's sit down, dad. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what happened and let's see if this really makes sense. And I know the situation you're in, but kind words, working through the logic of it and uh, and understanding you know, real life examples, showing them examples where people have lost everything and they will keep going after you till there's no money left. That's how brutal these people are. Um, so, but to, certainly not criticism. Yeah. When, when you look at all of, you know, what we've talked about, what you learned from the FBI, what would you say would be your biggest single tip uh, for people who are trying to avoid being falling victim to this? Yeah, just be, you know, be careful, and the, I guess the good decision involved again the emotional part. Um, be careful when everyone's asking you for information, unsolicited information, whether it's a text message, an email. Anytime you're being pulled emotionally, there's a problem with your account. You know, let's fix this right away before it gets worse. That's another emotional thing. You're going to get in not only to your email account, now they're getting into your bank account. Does that make sense, really? So those type of things, but also as you get a little bit. Um, uh, older and you know a lot of people don't want to admit this, but uh, they don't want to ask for family members to have joint control of accounts or to have extra authority required before money is transferred yeah. out of an account. But that's a big, uh, a big, um, uh, uh, important way that we can we can help people. So you know, did you know that uh, you, that your mom is trying to withdraw twenty thousand uh, dollars from this account? No, I I had no idea, and that's an actual phone call I got just the other day from one of my clients. Um, who had already set fifty thousand, and uh, and uh, and then finally the person at the bank said this doesn't sound right. Called the son, and the son said no, that shouldn't be happening. So having family members involved in these kind of decisions and and the checks and, and balances, I can't walk into a bank as an eighty five year old person and drain the account dry cash over the counter uh, without someone calling another person in the family to say this is happening. That just doesn't make sense that banks would let let that happen. But the law is the law. I mean, if somebody wants their money out and there's no other names on the account, they have to give that money to that person. Oh, I, I, had, a, I had a friend of mine whose mom was in that vulnerable situation, and he finally had to just change all of her banking and financial records to just come to his house. And he was able to catch a lot of stuff because she had been giving to charities, you know, just kind of over and over and, and actually forgetting that she had already given money and uh, giving again, and, and it was uh, it, she was pretty vulnerable. But you know, that's another tip: just kind of bring the bring the yeah. address back to. Back hey, home. thanks for being here, Jeff. Sure, um, I learned a lot. I enjoyed our conversation. I've got a copy of your book, Cybercrime, here on the desk. Where can people connect with you, the work you're doing, and get a copy of your books? Oh, sure. Just go to my website. It's uh, it's uh, www.thelanzagroup.com. So that's T H E. Lanza is L-A-N-Z-A group.com. 
uh, my books there and also information about uh, about me and and my the type of work that I do at educating people on uh, on these kind of topics. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate hey, it. Welcome. Jeff, thanks nice, for talking with us. Nice talking to you guys. Take care. My takeaway from talking with Jeff is looking at having that two-factor authentication, number one, and then making sure uh, that I've got unique and complex passwords. Yeah. Yeah. My takeaway is what I shared earlier about the emotional component of victimhood when it comes to cybercrime is so strong and that's, that's key with anything. So if we want to make better decisions, whether it's to avoid cybercrime or any other problem that could come out in from the outside and threaten our business, um, being able to understand what emotions we're experiencing is the very first step. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.